turn together now in the Word of God to Matthew chapter 6, picking up where we left off last week as we are going through the Lord's Prayer, each petition one by one. Here now, Matthew 6, verses 12 through 15. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God remains forever. Someone once said, I can give you the secret to a good marriage in one word. And you're thinking, I'm really skeptical. What word was it? Forgive. Hopefully now you're not as skeptical. Kevin DeYoung says, forgiveness is the key ingredient not only in marriage, but in any relationship involving sinners. If you're going to have friends for any length of time, they're going to stick around. If you're going to see your relatives more than once every five years, if you plan to work in the same place with the same people for any length of time, if you want to be happy in the church or not just give up on the church and chuck it, we need to learn forgiveness. We need to grant it. We need to receive it. Today, we're looking at this petition, the gospel petition, as some people say, being reminded that in the Christian life, as we pray, prayers of repentance and confession of sin are foundational to our personal lives, to our relationships, and to our life as a church. What does this look like? First, our need. For forgiveness. So you're in a church, you're visiting today here, or you're visiting somewhere else. They begin to recite the Lord's Prayer. They get to this petition, and you are immediately, perhaps, awkwardly not sure which word to say. Anybody been there? (laughs) Because maybe you've heard debts, trespasses, and sins. Right? And all three are biblical words, and all three are mentioned by Jesus in both Matthew and Luke in the Lord's Prayer. So it's not wrong to say one or the other, but you're not sure maybe what they're saying. There's a history to this a bit. The Anglican Church, which uses the Book of Common Prayer, and churches that come out of that, Episcopal, Wesleyan, Methodist, they often use the word trespasses. Other churches will use debts or sins. The point above it all, though, is what do these words mean? What is sin? Well, sin is first and foremost a condition that we inherit from Adam and the fall. It's our state of fallenness and depravity. And it's acts that come from that condition. So because by nature I'm selfish, I will then speak words that communicate that selfishness to my loved ones, and those are called sins. First and foremost, sin is against God. It's the act of rebelling and breaking his law. Trespass. 
Sin is also debt. That's the version of Matthew 6 that we just looked at here. Now, what does debt mean? Well, I was looking this last week, Wednesday afternoon, and I saw that the national debt at that moment was $30.9 trillion. And it was going up as I was watching the website for about 60 seconds, continuing to rise. About $92,000 per person in America. As high as that is, that is nothing compared to the debt that each of us owes to God. Sin makes us a debtor to God. What is the nature of this debt? God has commanded us to be holy as he is holy. With one sin, we fall short of God's perfect holiness. He is owed from us perfect personal obedience and love and worship. And none of us has given God those things. The whole world, Phil Riken says, is full of God's debtors. They're all around us. They're running up their charges with selfish ambitions at work, with angry, vengeful words in the home, with petty disputes at church. So when it comes to our spiritual accounts, no one can help us because no one here or anywhere has any more assets than we do. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need forgiveness. The debt is infinite. We can't repay it. In fact, contrary to the entitlement culture of our world, what does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. The debt has to be covered somehow. The Bible does not teach what's called a debtor's ethic. Have you heard of that? It's hopeless for us to try to pay back our debt to God. And yet some think that they're trying to do that. Some people might come to church thinking, I'm going to reduce the debt this week. Here I am. Now I got less. No. Every false religion tries to pay back the debt to God and whittle it away. To try to earn salvation. To try to do enough good works to outweigh bad works is the essence of false religion. It's the anti-gospel. Words matter. Here's one man. The fifth petition. Forgive us our debts. What does this mean? Justice, mercy, and grace. Words, again, that our culture takes and twists. But what is the biblical definition? Justice. Getting what we deserve. Mercy. Not getting what we deserve. Grace, getting what we don't deserve. So when we ask God, forgive us our debts, we're asking that justice not be done to me, that mercy be shown instead, and more, that I might get what I don't deserve, grace and favor. But how can God be just and holy, which he is, And still be God and forgive me when my debt is infinite. God doesn't ignore sin. 
David Strain says, Jesus Christ lived that life of perfect love and obedience. Jesus, the Son of God, he fulfilled the law of God. He accomplished all the requirements of it. And as the sinless Savior, he laid down his life in my place as my substitute on that cross. All my sins were laid on him. God put on him the iniquity of us all. His righteousness is received by faith in all who believe. And on the cross, he said, it is, what, kids? Finished. Jesus didn't just build a bridge halfway across the Mississippi River and say that you have to jump the rest or build the bridge the rest of the way. Paid in full. The mission is accomplished. The covenant of works has been kept. It is finished. No more debt to pay. He paid it all. So where is forgiveness to be found? It is to flee to Christ and to say, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. To cast our sins on Jesus. To trust in him by faith. In his great love and compassion, he has made a full and complete satisfaction for our sins. You might say, well, okay, then why do I need to pray the Lord's Prayer anymore? See what Jesus says? Forgive us our debts. If that's true, then I don't need to continue to confess my sin, do I? Have you wondered that? Why do we continue to confess our sin since Christ paid for it all? Well, one reason is because we're still sinners. We have not yet gone to glory. Christ liberated us from the penalty of sin, but the presence of sin is right here. Like taking a shower, kids. You need to take a bath. Did you maybe take that bath last night or this morning? Because we get dirty, we get sweaty. So we need a daily cleansing spiritually. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to what, First John? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This prayer we pray at the beginning of the Christian life, we pray the entirety of the Christian life. I'm not even close to aware of how many times I've sinned against God just by my lack of love for him in addition to how I've rebelled against his law and his love. If we don't daily confess our sin, we think lightly of our sin, or we might not think that we are actually committing any sin today. We confess our sin regularly, and this is connected with our assurance as well. Maybe you struggle with assurance of salvation. One person says this, if you struggle with deep assurance that God loves you, perhaps one reason is we've tried to deal with our sin just by hoping it won't pop up. Just by putting it in the back of my mind, think, saying, okay, I just hope it doesn't happen again. Instead of putting it in the front of my eyes at the cross of Jesus before the throne of God and confessing it. Psalm 51, against you, O God, you only have I sinned. This is connected with our assurance. As is the word Father. Jesus is saying, don't pray to God as a 
a big, angry guy who's trying to get you, but as a father who loves you in Christ. When we make that connection, we realize my sin displeases God. He's my father. My sin grieves the Holy Spirit. When I sin, I disrupt the father-son relationship I enjoy with God by grace through faith in Jesus. So that's why we ask for forgiveness every day. Not because we lose our salvation when we sin. But as DeYoung says, because I've made a mess of this relationship that is most important of all. We confess sins specifically. Sins have names. It's easy to be generic. And as we grow in maturity in Christ, you know this, you realize, I hate this sin so much, God, I want to be rid of it. I don't want to hurt these people that I love the most. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to grow stale spiritually. Because when we live in unconfessed sin, we lose our appetite for spiritual things. We grow cold. Our, our conscience is desensitized. Are you keeping from God today all that you should place at the cross of Jesus? Has your relationship with the Lord been ruptured because you haven't confessed sin? Have you and I become blind to our sins because we don't include this fifth petition, Lord, forgive me, in our prayers? Are we avoiding honest admission of our sin? Or are we demanding of others what God has not demanded of you? Secondly, the call to forgive. Jesus here speaks of debtors. Do you see that in Matthew 6, 12? People who have sinned against us. So here's our position in the world. We are sinners who have sinned against God. We have sinned against each other, and others have sinned against us. God owes us nothing. God is no one's debtor, as Colin Smith says. But we have an obligation to God, and we have an obligation to each other. What is that? To love the Lord, to love our neighbor as ourself. Debtors means there are people in your life who will not give you that. They are your debtors. They will not love you well. They will disappoint you. They will not give you the grace that they should. But when they fail to love you, you and I still have an obligation to love them. That's the reality of the challenge of living as Christians in a fallen world, in a marriage, in a home, in a church, in a neighborhood, at work. Forgive us. That's the hinge, isn't it, loved ones? Between us receiving forgiveness from God and then us, by God's grace, forgiving each other. Forgive us as we also. It's a comparison. Not that we earn salvation through our forgiving of others. But Jesus is saying, 
It is hypocritical to say to God, forgive me for my sins if I don't forgive others when they sin against me. How many times? Do you remember Matthew 18? Just let's have a number. We love numbers. Maybe you don't love numbers. Maybe you do. Peter said, Lord, how many times should I forgive this brother? Seven times? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. Not that the number's 491. (laughs) But it shows the incalculable weight of our indebtedness to God. And a failure for me to forgive someone else betrays a serious problem of heart and unbelief. And then Jesus tells the parable, Matthew 18. Do you remember, children? A man owed someone a debt, 10,000 talents. He couldn't repay it. The boss generously forgave the debt. That same man who is just forgiven goes out. Someone owes him 100 denarii. He has that man thrown into prison. His boss finds out and says, <laughs> you yourself are ordered now to go into prison for the debt of what? Basically, $6 billion. It's unimaginable. You can't pay it. It's infinite before God. 100 denarii, basically $12,000. Not insignificant, but nothing compared to $6 billion. There's a story of two women. They both claim to be Christians. They lived in the same room together, went to church together. They're sisters. They're unmarried. They have a dispute over theology. They don't resolve it. They don't move out, and they don't reconcile. What do they do? They draw a line through the middle of the room, and they share the room, half of the fireplace here, half there, And they live together in cold, sullen silence the rest of their life. They pray the Lord's Prayer at church, but they don't pray it in their hearts. All of us, loved ones today, find ourselves in relationships where there's conflict. When Jesus says in his word, forgive one another, whose name comes to your mind? There's all sorts of people probably that come to your mind. You might have a heart that kind of skips a bit and you think, well, I'm not going to forgive that person. No way. That's what Jesus is uncovering here by his spirit. Whoever's name or the picture of that person that you've been holding resentment and bitterness against, what causes these quarrels and fights? James 4. We desire and we don't have, so we murder. We covet, we can't obtain, so we fight, we quarrel. How can we forgive, then, those who have wronged us? It's not natural. Colin Smith again. What naturally happens is that the the hurt that goes into us from someone else gets passed from us to someone else. So the person who despises me, I then go and despise someone else. The person who deceives me or hurts me, I then go and deceive and hurt someone else. 
And the tragedy of this is that what has been so painful to me is channeled through me into the life of someone else. And the cycle often continues. We need the gospel promise in the midst of everyday relationships. On the marriage bed, at the dinner table, in church meetings, in friendship, coffee gatherings, in Bible studies, at school, in the neighborhood. The key to peace is the gospel. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. We forgive for the health of our soul, loved ones, for the glory of God, for the good of this person. The world doesn't do that. We live in a culture that says, I find out something that happened that you did 30 years ago, you will pay, and there is no forgiveness. There's no grace. There's no gospel. There's retaliation and revenge. That's the world we live in. That's how our hearts are naturally wired. But in Christ, we can ask in the midst of this conflict, how can I glorify God here? We often don't think that. Where's the log in my eye? I am a good speck detector. I can see specks from miles away. I can read motivations and read specks like like x-ray vision. Matthew 7. But I've got a log the size of a California redwood right here. And I'm bumping into everyone the minute I turn around. Jesus says, are you aware of the log? By my spirit, are you aware? Maybe I'm making too big a deal out of this. That's one thing. This log, I am overly sensitive and I should overlook it, as the Proverbs say. Maybe I've contributed to this in ways I don't even see. God, help me. I'm blind. I need Jesus here. Maybe the offense is too serious to overlook. We go. Matthew 18 talks about going prayerfully to reconcile, to seek forgiveness, controlling our tongue, getting help from the Lord. What does it mean then to forgive someone? First of all, what doesn't it mean? It is not the absence of all consequences. The thief on the cross was not removed from the cross just because he confessed his sin. There are consequences to sin, to breaking the law, jail, things like that. Forgiveness is not the absence of any judgment, Matthew 7 The kind of judging we're to avoid is the negative, believing only the critical, assuming the worst. That's judgmentalism. But we are to make wise evaluations. We're to be thinking and discerning. Forgiveness doesn't say the sin doesn't matter. Some people have hurt you deeply. Forgiveness doesn't mean you just trust that person. In some situations, It doesn't mean you should live with that person anymore in that context. What's it saying? God is bigger. The cross is bigger. Don't focus on what they owe, but what God has already forgiven. Real forgiveness doesn't fall for cheap substitutes. 
Paul, uh, uh, um, David Paulison gives this story. Johnny and his wife have plans to visit her family. Johnny says, with all his lame excuses, I forgot, I'm not going. Joni comes at him with videographic outrage. She assumes every sort of malicious motive. She accuses him, you always, you never. She calls him names. She shouts expletives. She trumpets her own righteousness. I never, I always remember to go to be with your family. I would never do this. I never diss your parents. She stomps off in a huff. Later, she feels bad for getting riled up. Johnny, I'm sorry for what I said. I didn't mean it. I was overtired. I was hungry. I was frazzled. He says, okay. They make up. Is that the end of the incident? No. That's not forgiveness sought. That's not forgiveness given. Nothing has been confessed. Nothing has been forgiven. She did mean what she said. Now she regrets it. And he was lazy and not wanting to go and be with the family. Forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not, okay, over time I just forget. It's active. Jeremiah 31, the Lord says, I will remember their sin no more. God doesn't forget. He's all-knowing. I will remember their sin, God says, because Christ paid for that sin. I won't remember it anymore. I won't hold it against them because Jesus died for that debt of sin, for that one I love. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an act of the will. It asks God to change my heart to make me want to forgive, to make me no longer hold this revengeful thought so that when this name comes up or I see this person, I don't cringe inside or hold them at a distance. Therapeutic forgiveness is not Christian forgiveness. Meaning it's not just an emotion or a feeling. It's something that happens between two parties. Reconciliation between God and the sinner in Christ and between two sinners together. Therapeutic forgiveness is just about how I feel and if I don't feel bad anymore then we go on but there's no actual reconciliation. Forgiveness is courageous. It doesn't ignore the wrong. It understands God has done me an incalculable kindness in Christ. Mercy after mercy. And now I in Christ have the grace to show that mercy to someone else. Instead of taking revenge. Mercies received lead to mercies given. Joni. What I said to you, Johnny, was wrong. I sinned. My words were cruel and hurtful. I exaggerated. I was self-righteous. Please forgive me. Johnny, I forgive you. Forgive me for not following through on what I said. I was lazy. I was careless. I made excuses. 
I was self-preoccupied. Forgive me. Joni, I forgive you. Johnny, I forgive you. By the grace of Jesus, they don't cover it up. To forgive means we don't make them pay. You can either take payments on the debt or make payments. You take by withholding forgiveness, dwelling on the wrong, giving up on the relationship, being cold, aloof, inflicting pain, gossiping, seeking revenge. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. To forgive means you release them from the liability to suffer punishment. You don't make them pay for what they did. So if they break your grandpa's shovel shipping ice, you don't say, go and make me grandpa's shovel again. You overlook it. You forgive. You don't make them pay for it. You stop the cycle of retaliation and viciously confronting and withholding love. It means not becoming hard and cold and cynical and self-pitying and self-absorbed. We will suffer when we forgive. We will absorb the cost and the debt. But it means the death of bitterness. The girl that's angry toward her dad, her dad has defeated her as long as she hates him. She will be trapped in her anger unless she forgives him as God in Christ forgave her. Where there is deep sin, the debt is not always paid at once. But if you trust in Christ, you have more than enough to make these payments. He has paid off the ultimate debt of sin. You draw on that grace through faith each day. Forgiveness makes you hang in there and not give up on relationships. We make promises. One good thing you see in a marriage is forgiveness. Two things you don't see in a good marriage, a sharp tongue and a photographic memory. (laughs) Do you remember 12 years ago when you said that? We all struggle with this, right? Our tongue. But God wants something more for us. Someone might struggle with repetitive sin. It doesn't mean you just forget it. You say, we need help here. Let's talk to someone who can help you because this pattern, there's no real repentance. It's fake repentance. You say you're sorry, but you keep doing it. And it doesn't change. And God, give us grace. We need help. Humble us to get the help we need. What's the fruit of this? The fruit might begin today with this one question. Who do you need to forgive today? It's possible there are some here who have never said the words, please forgive me, to the Lord or to anyone else. Do you need to forgive your spouse, a friend, a sibling, a parent, Another family member? Someone at church? As new members have joined today, we will let you down. We love you. We're glad you're here. There's no perfect church. 
When we have grievances or issues, we go to that person. If someone has a grievance with me, please come to me. Please talk or whoever might be in your life. With the goal of reconciliation, with the goal of giving grace as we have received grace. That could be the first fruit. Another fruit, forgiven souls hate sin. And they love Jesus. They love his person. They love his work. They love the cross. They love the promise of forgiveness and righteousness. Forgiven souls are humble. It's pride often that leads us to sit here and stew and never reconcile. Forgiven souls desire to forgive as they have been forgiven. Corey Tenboom was born in 1892 in the Netherlands. You maybe know her story, The Hiding Place. Her and her family created a hiding place in their home to hide Jewish and other refugees. In 1944, they were found out by the Nazi Gestapo. All those who were in the hiding place were not found. Corey and her family were dispersed. Her dad died 10 years, 10 days, I'm sorry, after that arrest. Her and her sister ended up at Ravensbrook death camp. Her sister Betsy died later in 1944. She survived. She left the concentration camp and she began to share the gospel with others after the war. Some of you know that well. She said, God has given me grace to forgive my oppressors. That had not been tested until a day in Munich, Germany. She's speaking, and there he was. One of the officers who had stood at the shower room in Ravensbrück, the first of their jailers that she had seen since the war. He came up to her, he said, Corey, I'm a Christian. I trust in Jesus. God has forgiven me my sin. Will you forgive me? He held out his hand. She hesitated. Could she forgive this one who had brought such pain in the life of her and her family? Many angry thoughts boiled in her. She prayed, Jesus, help me forgive him. She took his hand. By the grace of God, she felt a love in her heart that almost overwhelmed her. God gave her the grace to love and forgive that man. Who has hurt and sinned against you? Who has offended you deeply? Don't hold on to it. Run to the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ you have forgiven us an infinite debt of sin. With you, O God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And now we pray, Lord, in this week ahead, help us to love other people well. Help us to grow in consideration and grace and forgiveness. And let the overflow of the grace you have given to us in Jesus go from us into this harsh, unforgiving world that your name will be honored, your kingdom extended, your will done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.